Welcome. Come on in, grab a chair and sit down. Oh, this is a podcast. That welcome was about as corny as the old radio preachers who I often heard addressing all of you out there in radio land. So welcome then to the Humble Perspectives podcast with Steve Humble. This week I will finish reading my book, For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey. How does one finish the story of a journey that is not yet complete? Hang on, and you'll hear how I finish my written story in chapter 28, Interested Beginner. Following Ted Sanquist's exhortation in 1998, I increasingly became involved in our city and county. The first step was renewed involvement in the Association of Churches. Most of what I called the more conservative, Bible-believing, or evangelical pastors had ceased to participate in the Association during the years when I had been delivering office products and then grieving Elijah's death. I never knew exactly why, although I did hear that there had been some dispute about abortion at some point. As usual, I was reluctant to take on leadership responsibility. But around the year 2000, I allowed the association members to elect me vice president. When the president took a different job and resigned, I ended up becoming the president of the association. <laughs> a reminder of my experience as a sophomore in college. I developed three goals for the association that I hope to bring about while president. First, I wanted to see pastors from the more evangelical churches get involved again. Second, I wanted to see pastors from the black community become active in the association. Third, I wanted to see small groups of pastors committing to regular times of prayer together. There was not much visible progress toward these goals made while I was president. I resigned as president soon after I began selling office products and therefore I was not able to be once again to be at many of the association meetings. In August 2005 I began an effort to become a regular participant again though. By that time Dale Hansen, a Southern Baptist, was president and I was surprised to see how many evangelicals had gotten involved. At that first meeting I attended, the primary discussion concerned a citywide tent meeting, the Great Hope Revival, they were calling it, and it was to be held later that same month. One part of that conversation is unforgettable. A question was put forth for discussion. Should we have an altar call each of the three nights, or should we have an altar call on only one of the nights? I assumed that this question was motivated by a desire to be sensitive to the less evangelical pastors. Before discussion could start, the voice of the Catholic priest, Father Norman Fisher, a young man who was fairly new to the community, rang out. Of course we'll have an altar call every night. We're praying for people to be saved, aren't we? Father Norman was leading a prayer team for those meetings, so he knew what they'd been praying for. No one dissented after his declaration. Father Norman is Afro-American, so at least one black pastor had become involved. Eventually, he became president of the association and the effectiveness of the group that had begun to grow under Dale Hansen's leadership grew even more. 
Within a few years, Reverend Sam Peoples from Broadway Baptist, one of the largest churches in the black community, became involved. And later he also served as president. It is worth noting that it has been hard for many of our Afro-American brothers to participate, even when they want to, because so many are part-time in church ministry. Several, I learned, were not only leading churches and holding down jobs, but also taking seminary classes. That would be a load for anyone, but on top of that, quite a few had children to raise as well. I am encouraged that there are Afro-American brothers currently leading churches in Winchester who seem clearly to be called to make a significant impact in our whole community. In January 2009, while I was dealing with the hip replacement, Clark County Coroner Robert Gayhart sensed a strong urge to call together pastors to pray for the community. Several began meeting to pray every Tuesday. As soon as I heard about the group that April, I began to pray with them. As many as 11 or 12 have prayed together at times, but five of us still meet regularly more than eight years later. There may well be other groups of leaders I don't know about who are praying together in our community. For quite a number of years, Winchester's Mayor Ed Burtner and Clark County Judge Executive Henry Branham have called a community prayer meeting on the first Saturday of each month. The intent of this gathering is to bring Christians in the community together in unified prayer in which we seek to pray for every sphere of responsibility in our community as the first order of business, Mayor Burtner would say, for the year. None of these things took place while I was leading, but progress has come about in all three things that I wanted to see come to pass. In the spring of 2005, I saw a front page article in the Winchester Sun, our local newspaper, about a meeting that had been called by an 83-year-old retired black pastor, Reverend Henry Baker, and a white businessman, Roger Hurst. The purpose of the meeting, the article said, had been to gather Christians together to deal with pervasive drug issues in our community, a problem that was killing about 20 people each year in our county of 35,000. As I read the article, I sensed the Lord saying clearly that I was to get involved. Therefore, I was present at the next meeting. Eventually, I was asked to serve on the board of the group that was formed and named the Clark County Drug Coalition, CCDC. For several years, I served as president of the group. Among a number of activities that we led over the next several years, I think the most important were public prayer gatherings we held. In the course of one week in October 2010, we prayed in two city parks on the grounds of an apartment complex and in one of the local federal housing projects. All four of these locations had been identified by city officials as centers of drug-related activity. Then in the spring and summer of 2012, we prayed in locations near to the four corners of the county. We held one of those gatherings just outside the property line of a pain clinic that was known to be a source of easy-to-get pain pill prescriptions, the major drugs to which our citizens were addicted at the time. It's often hard to prove the specific effectiveness of prayer. All I can say is that by 2012, the number of drug-related deaths had dropped to a half dozen or fewer and stayed at the, that low level for several years. More than one civil official has attributed, attributed the decline in addiction deaths to those prayer meetings. 
I can also report that the clinic was investigated and soon closed down. Early in 2012, Jim Corbett, an acquaintance and former Cincinnati Bengal, called to set up a lunch appointment with his friend Chad Varga and me. At lunch, I learned that Chad had been raised by an alcoholic and drug-addicted mother who, with her two children, had lived with one abusive boyfriend after another. Chad had been dramatically saved by Jesus at age 14 and had become a basketball star. At the point where, when his professional basketball career was about to become truly lucrative, Chad felt called of the Lord to leave basketball in order to reach young people with a background like his. Now he makes presentations in schools all across the country, motivating young people to believe that they can build good character in their lives even if they have a background as terrible as his. You can uh, check out Chad Varga's story and ministry on his website, chadvarga.com. A few times a year, Chad will work with churches in a specific community to plan an event to which young people can be invited following the assemblies in the schools. At these events, they can hear his testimony about Jesus. Jim believed that it would be good for Chad to come to our area. After hearing about Chad and Jim, I told After hearing from Chad and Jim, I told them straightforwardly that I was skeptical about the fruit of event-type evan evangelism. Still, over the next few days, I became convinced that God was leading CCDC to call the churches together to sponsor such an event in our community. The CCDC board agreed. Suffice it to say, in six months, Chad and I spent 11 Sundays visiting 21 churches in three counties. In each church, Chad presented his testimony and the vision for the event. Gradually, volunteers from the churches came together to form an effective team to plan an event at our local high school, which we called the event we called Collide at GRC, GRC for George Rogers Clark High School. People in the churches Chad and I visited also gave enough money for us to prepare more than 1,300 follow-up packets at $10 per packet. Nearly a thousand of them volunteered to staff the event. Individuals and businesses in the community contributed $25,000 to pay for hundreds of prizes, free food, music, and games. At the beginning of the 2012-2013 school year on August 27 and 29, Chad made his presentations in all the public high schools and middle schools in our county and in two neighboring counties, Montgomery and Powell. He addressed about 8,000 students in seven schools. It was amazing to see the young people respond to his speech and then to see many line up afterward in order to meet Chad and for a dollar purchase his book, If You Only Knew, his story told in more detail. It was heartrending to hear even a few of the stories they told him about their lives. Later, Chad received hundreds of private Facebook messages in which the teens from those schools not only opened up about the horror in their lives, but also about the hope he had inspired in them. 
At each school, we offered free tickets to collide at GRC. Chad informed the young people right up front at the end of each assembly that he would be sharing his testimony about Jesus at the event. Each ticket had an area to be filled in with the student's name and contact information so that when that student came to the event, we could collect that part of the ticket in order to follow up with him or her. On Wednesday evening, August 29th, about 3,500 students came to collide at GRC. After food and games, we gathered the students into the gymnasium to hear Chad share more of his story. Toward the end of his testimony, he completely surprised the students by introducing and calling to the stage his mother, who had become a believer and had been living free from addiction for about 20 years. Right before their eyes, those young people saw a living example of redemption and reconciliation. After a short, clear presentation of the gospel message, Chad said, Now I don't want you to look at your neighbor. I don't want you to follow the lead of anyone around you. If you have a desire to make Jesus Lord of your life and to receive him as your Savior, then stand up right now. Hundreds stood immediately. It was electric. As I write these words, and as I read them, tears are welling up in my eyes as I remember that moment. At Chad's direction, most of those who stood came down in front of the stage where he took time to, to look directly at each one, literally, and then led them in a prayer of confession and repentance. More than 800 of the students filed over to the school auditorium and to the cafeteria where we prayed with each of them and gave each a follow-up packet. I don't know whether or not the saints in heaven joined Jesus in interceding for us, Hebrews 7, to 25 or whether they don't. But if they do, I'm confident my son Elijah joined his Lord in praying for us and for all those young people and that he was rejoicing with the angels that night. About midnight, Patricia and I got home from Collide after going to Don Senor with, for a late dinner with Chad. I was weary, but elated. What a great victory God had brought about, and there was some satisfaction in having a part to play in it all, I must admit. Then I noticed that Patricia was not elated and did not appear to be happy. I began to question her, most likely pressing too hard, which is one of my weaknesses. When my wife began to talk about what she was feeling, my emotions turned upside down. She had retired from her job earlier that year, and the change in schedule had allowed her to volunteer her help with some of the Clyde preparation. I had been all caught up in my work on the event and missed the signals altogether. Understandably, she had felt there, there was no place for her when she wasn't specifically asked for things. Then some things happened that caused her to be offended. Patricia, sincerely seeking to spare me from extra burdens while I was working so hard on the event, had carried these things alone, holding them in. Something had taken place that evening while we were out to eat with Chad following the event that had brought everything to the surface. Although I cared about the hurt she was carrying, I didn't care enough. I was disappointed and offended, more concerned about myself, if I'm fully honest. 
That evening, we entered one of the most difficult seasons in our whole marriage, maybe even the most difficult. While there were many wonderful moments along the way, for more than two years, both Patricia and I were in a difficult place. From the beginning, we had been in this marriage for life. That was a settled issue. What kind of life it would be was in question. More than once, I despaired. Several times we sat down with our friend Dennis Cole, who would draw us out and help us to hear and think through what we were feeling about ourselves and what we were communicating with each other. Those times I found to be very helpful. Toward the end of two years, Patricia and I read Power Christian, Christian Thinking, Changing Hopelessness to Faith, Hope, and Love, a book by Dr. Gary Sweeten, a counselor and church consultant from Cincinnati, Ohio. That book helped to bring together several things the Lord had been working on in me during that season. In early 2015, Patricia and I visited with Dr. Sweeten for a couple hours in a coffee shop. That time also was encouraging for me. One of the several key moments in that season took place while we were singing during our Winchester Covenant worship gathering one Sunday in December 2012, as I recall. I had a strong sense that God was speaking to me. I grabbed my phone and typed in the words I was hearing. Harden not. Let suffering not make me hard but tender. Do not focus on my wounds and protecting myself, but be concerned with Pat's hurt. I have taken offense. I didn't deserve this. I've had wrong done me, so I've put up defense so that what is said will not cut me. I've tried to be strong, actually coming out hard, rather than be weak and let the hurt hurt so that I can be a vehicle of healing. I also wrote lies, only the strong survive. The good die young, the opposite of which would mean the evil, the hard, the tough endure. Those words may, make, may not make much sense to you, but they did to me. And as I chewed on them in the days to come, they became even clearer. God was working with me to help me make myself more vulnerable. He wanted me to be free, to be available to Patricia, and more concerned with her than I was with myself. He wanted me to allow myself to hurt so that he could bring the kind of comfort to me that could then flow through me to her and others. God was reminding me and assuring me that in his kingdom, his strength really comes into action when I'm weak and content to be weak in myself. If in my weakness I turn to him and allow him to enable me by grace to do for others what I cannot do by myself. He was reminding me that dying to myself is the path that releases his life in me and through me. Christianity 101, I know. But I seem to have to go back and repeat the early grades often. And that is the way of discipleship, the method of any discipline. For an example, when an athlete gets into some kind of slump, he doesn't try to learn new and more complex things, but rather focuses once again on the fundamentals. So the simple words jotted down that Sunday became a big part of my practice routine for the next two years. 
God gave us another special gift during that time. Not many weeks after it felt like our world was exploding, God sent a young couple to us in order that, of all things, they could receive help for their marriage. We began to meet with them regularly. It seems as though prior to every time we met, usually shortly before, Patricia and I would hit another knothole in our difficulties. We might have worked through it or might still be working through it when the time came to get together with the young couple. It seems as though every time we met, our struggle provided some wisdom or encouragement for the younger couple. In the course of our times together, we became real friends. God did a miracle in their relationship. It looked like it might be broken beyond repair for a while. But with great courage and determination, they each kept turning to the Lord, and He restored them in our weakness. God also did a miracle in our relationship. We still don't have the perfect marriage, whatever that is, but we love each other more than ever, and we are slowly learning to work together more fruitfully than we had before. As awesome as the things the Lord was showing me and working in me back in the 1970s were, in the last 25 years, he's led me to look again into those foundational truths. The opportunity to work on marriage again is one example. While my understanding of these truths is, I fully believe, much greater than it was, I must add this confession. I now know more than ever that my ability to build on this understanding and to impart it to others and to build it into the life of our church is much weaker than I could have known. In recent years, once again, the Lord has been emphasizing the truth that He created us and redeemed us and calls us to be disciples who make disciples. I was sure I got this point way back when. Yet now I know that my understanding of even this basic truth has been quite incomplete to say nothing of the level of discipleship I have lived. Discipleship I see more clearly and deeply than ever is not a program nor is it sim a, simply a way of life. Rather, discipleship is the process by which we are transformed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. In a way, I was driven by my weaknesses to wrestle again with what it means to be a disciple. In the spring of 2015, I was in a season of discouragement and stress, perhaps even depression. It seemed impossible to resist the temptation to be discouraged about the difficult things Patricia and I had been working through in spite of the fact that much good had come in those struggles and that the season was ending. I also had been dealing with concerns and anxiety having to do with Winchester Covenant Church for a number of months in spite of the fact that there was much about our life together that was wholesome and good. Once again, the Holy Spirit used books this time to stir me to ponder the purpose and meaning, means of biblical discipleship. Without thinking why I was doing so, I responded to an ad offering me two free Audible books if I would sign up to be a monthly subscriber to Audible Books, audible.com. I had never been inclined to purchase Audible books, but for some reason that day I began to look at what was available. To my surprise, two books grabbed my attention and I took the offer. The first book I chose was N.T. Wright's Simply Good News, Why the Gospel is News and What Makes It Good, which I had 
recently read and thoroughly appreciated. This book, along with his true previous book, Simply Jesus, A New Vision of Who He Was, What He Did, and Why He Matters, and his book, How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels, distill some of the fruit of Wright's academic theological work in a, far, a format far more accessible to a less academic reader. The greatest thing about this book is that it brought into sharp focus conclusions about Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom that have been developing in my own thought for years as well as opening many insights that I had not perceived. The second audiobook was Dallas Willard's The Great Omission, Reclaiming Jesus' Essential Teachings on Discipleship, which I began to listen to first. It was Willard's emphasis on the spiritual disciplines, such disciplines as prayer, memorization, meditation, and silence, as primary ways God has provided for us to be transformed. These struck me to the heart and stimulated me to hunger for more of the kind of transformation that Willard was describing. Dallas Willard's work was not new to me, nor was the topic. My friend Dr. David Lanier had given me Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, Rediscovering Our Hidden Life in God, on my 50th birthday. And I had even used the third chapter as a reading in the Mars Hill Worldview class I taught. Several years after receiving that gift, I had been deeply touched and helped by Willard's revolution of character, discovering Christ's pattern for spiritual transformation. That book was co-written with Don Simpson. But in 2015, the time was right, according to God's script, for the divine omission. A new season had begun. While I was still listening to this book, Amazon began to tempt me with ads for other books, triggered by my purchases. In this way, I became aware that Willard had been involved in the production of a study Bible on the theme of transformation the Renovare Spiritual Formation Bible, and I bought a copy. Frankly, I don't like some of the introductions to the books of the Bible very well in that particular Bible. I do, though, appreciate the list of disciplines with related scripture passages that are listed in the back. However, the opening essay, The With God Life, by Richard Foster, author of the well-known book Celebration of Discipline, was worth the price of the Bible for me. This essay I discovered later is expanded in his book, Life with God, Reading the Bible for Spiritual Transformation, which I recommend highly. Eugene Peterson, translator of the Message Bible, was also part of the Renovari Project and his Eat This Book, A Conversation in the Art of Spiritual Reading, was a great help at that time to me as well. The first spiritual discipline that I thought I should practice was to memorize and meditate on Scripture. I started with the Sermon on the Mount, which Dallas Willard had recommended. Whether because of my age or some other reason, I soon discovered that memorizing, especially retaining what I work to memorize, is far more difficult now than it was in my younger years. I began by trying to memorize Matthew 5, 1 to 16. I still have to review the passage to get the words correct unless I go over it nearly every day. 
However, the need to go back over it again and again has actually helped me to meditate on it, to chew on it, to ponder it, and to get the meaning. I believe that the Holy Spirit prompted me over the next couple of months to add John 15, 1-17 and 1 John 1, 1, 1 to 2, 6 as passages for memorization and meditation. I do not have adequate words to share what these passages have meant to me except to say that I continue to be moved by the depth of God's desire for us all to enter into real fellowship, into koinonia, the Greek word, meaning communion or participation. Fellowship, God wants us to enter into this fellowship, into a relationship of true love with God and with all the members of God's family. The stress and anxiety I was experiencing at that time would wake me up in the middle of most nights. Unable to sleep, anxious thoughts kept racing in my mind. I learned that if I would get out of bed, go to the chair in my office, and begin to meditate on these passages, then before too long, peace would come, and I could go back to bed and sleep. What I gained in these meditations far outweighed lost sleep. I'm sure it was also the Holy Spirit who prompted me to work on memorizing and meditating on Ephesians 4, 1-16. The first six verses especially began to direct my heart, my mind, and my behavior as I faced the stresses related to our church. Again and again I was reminded that my primary responsibility is to be a disciple, that is to live in a way that honestly reflects the attitudes and way of life of my master and trainer a way of life that's the fruit of abiding in fellowship with God in dependence on the Holy Spirit. When I went to the doctor for my annual physical in late July that year, I was just beginning this practice of memorizing and meditating on the scripture. My primary care doctor is a teacher at the University of Kentucky School of Medicine. Therefore, I normally am interviewed by a medical student, an intern, and or a resident before I see the doctor himself. I try to be as open and forthright as possible with the student doctors and interns in the hope that I may contribute something to their training. Thus on that visit I opened up a little bit about the loss of sleep, the stress, and the discouragement. I think the intern who saw me must have been excited and thought, now I've got one. When the doctor came in after talking with the intern, he was wanting to send me to a counselor and offered to give me medicine to help me sleep. I refused. Still, he urged me to schedule a follow-up visit in October. His response jarred me to take my condition more seriously. Within a, two, a day or two of that visit, I made a written list of everything I could think of that might be a source of anxiety, stress, or depression. Prayerfully, I entered into the presence of His grace and there before his throne I presented that list. More than once, I should add. I also got together with Dennis Cole, to whom I look for pastoral care, and I continued meditating on those passages, trying to memorize them, or mostly simply to remember them. By the time I went back to the doctor in October, I could truthfully say that I was sleeping well most nights. Through prayer and meditation, I had gone to the great counselor, the Holy Spirit, who helped me. My wife and Dennis were also praying for me, and the, counsel and the counselor was releasing the peace of God in me.
Then, early one morning in December, whether in a dream or in that odd state between sleeping and awaking, an incomplete phrase came sharply to mind. Internal transformation, with an arrow pointing to the next part, is external blank. Immediately, I had a powerful sense that God was speaking to me. The arrow I recognized as a symbol that we had used in linguistics, meaning rewrites as or generates. I knew immediately that this was an important phrase, even though the last word was missing. For at least two weeks, I pondered and prayed about that phrase, seeking for the right word to complete it. Finally, it came. Internal transformation generates external reproduction. It struck me that this word reproduction has a twofold application. One, to the degree that the core of my being, my heart, my inner man, is being transformed into conformity with the life of Jesus, that is, being conformed with his attitudes, thoughts, and characters, to that degree, the same kind of attitudes and thought and character will be produced in my external behavior. The fruit of the Spirit will develop and mature on the branch, to use the image Jesus gave in John 15. His fruit can become the reality of my life and will be the available for others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Fruit carries seed. Therefore, seeds can be spread to the people who taste the Spirit's fruit through my life. As that seed germinates in those who taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8, they also may become fruit-bearing disciples of Jesus. The seasons have changed, certainly for Patricia and me. It seems clear to me that in my lifetime, the seasons has also changed for the church, church in the full sense, the whole body of Christ. And it has changed, the seasons have changed for our nation and for our world. That change, for the most part, is not in a good direction. No, I'm not yearning for a return to the 1950s of my childhood, and I'm not yearning for a return to, the Mer to America the way she used to be. I yearn for the future. I yearn for the coming time, the time the prophets foresaw, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In fulfillment of God's promise to Moses, indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. I yearn for the time when there's a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living, the time of restoration or restitution of all things, the time when the prayer is fulfilled and God's kingdom has come and God's will is done on earth as is in heaven. Now, there's a mouthful in that paragraph. I have a footnote. What I just wrote there comes out of Habakkuk 2.14 in the ESV, Numbers 14.21 in the New American Standard Bible, Amos 5.24 in the New Living Testament, or, or translation, Acts 3.21 in the Christian Standard Bible and the King James, and Matthew 6.10 in the, in the ESV. Um, You can look them up in various translations and they'll say something similar, but I picked that particular word. It's such a mouthful. 
for my sake, not just yours, I'm going to read that paragraph again. I yearn for the future. I yearn for the coming time, the time the prophet foresaw, when the earth will be fulfilled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In fulfillment of God's promise to Moses, indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. I yearn for the time when there is a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living, the time of the restoration or restitution of all things, the time when Jesus' prayer is fulfilled and God's kingdom has come and God's will is done on earth as in heaven. Our life in Winchester Covenant goes on. I am extremely grateful to for the brothers and sisters with whom I've been privileged to share life in our fellowship, as well as for those in the larger spiritual family who have shared their lives with us over the years. We have now worshiped together, lived our lives together, fellowshiped together, rejoiced together, and wept together. Children have been born among us, they have grown up, and several of them are now raising families of their own among us. Sadly, we've lost some children together also. Some we've lost to death, yet we'll see them again. Others we've lost to the ways of the world. But their stories are not yet complete, and we persist in praying that, they may see, that we may see every one of them restored in the kingdom of God and in the community of his disciples. We are by no means the model church for anyone to follow. But there are several ways in which our life together, I think, can serve as a can serve as a faithful witness and a good testimony to other church communities as well as to our city and region, especially in these changing times. The culture has changed. We no longer live in a Christian nation as was assumed when I was a child, and unfortunately still is assumed by too many people. People who would identify themselves as Christian may still be in the majority, but those who actually live as Christians, those who actually seek to follow Jesus as Lord and Master of their whole life and history, are not in the majority. What's more, by any definition of Christian, the mindset in our culture and the voices that actually drive us are not Christian. Rather, the driving forces of our world are decidedly anti-Christian. Sadly, I might add, some of those voices that are not Christian are coming from the pulpits and pews of our churches. The church, the body of Messiah, the King, the Christ, who has all authority in heaven and earth, his body, the church, desperately needs to rediscover what it means to be a people, a community who belong to God and who by our way of life together are a light in the darkness. Winchester Covenant's not a big light and we by no means have it all together. Still our efforts to be a people, a community who live distinctly as the people of God, the disciples of Jesus, though often feeble and incomplete, have, I think, been headed in the direction that's so necessary in these times. 
These more recent years have not been uneventful for our family. After working 16 years for the University of Kentucky's hospital, Patricia retired in 2012. Together, she and I have gone through long seasons when I was dealing with health issues and surgeries. We've had wonderful seasons of joy in our marriage, and we've also had challenging seasons when we've had to work out the unity of marriage in Christ. Having now completed nearly 47 years of married life together, I know for sure that marriage is a great gift from God, a gift in which it's more, it's more than worth investing my very best in the hope that we may become a more faithful picture of Christ and the church. Our daughters, after marrying godly men, have now given us 14 wonderful grandchildren. Stephanie and Daniel have given nine of them. Elijah Wolf in 2000, Gill and Jude in 2002, Kylie Grace in 2003, Augustine Daniel in 2005, Jesse Sackett in 2007, twins Lucy Arwen and Daisy Susanna in 2010, Zane Isaac in 2012, and finally Ever Jane in 2014, until the quiver was full. <laughs> Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Their family is fully involved with our friends in the Fellowship of Believers, the church in which Daniel grew up, and they live only a mile and a half away. Daniel and Andrea have given us five more, Benjamin Asher in 2006, Carolina Jane in 2008, Josie Karras in 2010, Justice Ryan in 2012, and Shiloh Eden in 2015. Their family is active in Winchester Covenant, and they live right in our house. What a wonderful gift God has given me in our own family, a third generation into whom I can invest love and with whom I can share what God has done in my life. More than that, there are three generations of us so far who now have the opportunity to follow Jesus together and to offer ourselves in service for his kingdom purposes. This year I stepped back from serving as presiding elder of our church, having handed over that responsibility to Bill Kamenish. I'm not actually retired, but I'm now 68 years old. I'm drawing Social Security, and my work responsibilities as an elder in the church are changing. I don't know what the future will be like. I do not have a clear vision for what will unfold in this season. Dad died in August 2013. Our friend and intercessor Dwayne Roller, who was only a few years younger than Dad, died in June 2014 after spending the last few weeks of his life in our home where we had the privilege to care for him. Like the leaves falling in the autumn, so more and more of our own generation are passing from this life into the age to come. In December 2009, I had the sad but great honor to be with one of my closest brothers in Christ, Bob Cattelier, and his family when he went on to see his Lord. Colin Laverne, a good friend from the servants, died in 2015. My two closest childhood friends have now died, Don Benner in November 2015 and Mitch Ramey in 2016. I know that my body is slowing and aches and pains are increasing, but my journey in this world is not over yet. I do not know how many days I have left, but God has something for me to cr contribute while I'm here. And I pray that whatever he has given me and has made of me will contribute something of his life and his ways to at least a few of those who will be helping to lead the way for God's people in the years ahead. Most of all, I long to know my father better.
and to be transformed much more than I have been so far into the image of Jesus, my King. Quite often the words of a gospel song from my childhood come to mind. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Most of the time I trust the one who holds my hand. Sometimes I still forget and need to make the choice afresh to be of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7. Years ago, I heard my friend Dennis Peacock share the wisdom his karate instructor gave after Dennis had just received his first black belt. Now you are an interested beginner, his instructor said. At different points in my journey, I realized that this statement was true of me. Now more than ever, I know I am still only an interested beginner. That realization would be devastating indeed at my age if in Christ we have hope in this life only. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, as the Apostle Paul put it. However, Paul didn't stop there. He went on to write, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 19-23 The Apostle John also told us about our true hope. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. 1 John 3, 1-3 My friend the late Dow Robinson challenged commonly held cultural ideas represented in mantras such as reach your full potential and be all you can be. When he said, these are lies if you hear them as philosophies for the present life. We were created and redeemed to grow in the knowledge of God and in his life for eternity. We will die having only begun our development. <laughs> there is hope, even for a person like me, who's often been a slow learner especially when it comes to working out in life what I know in my head. In the life to come, the battle with sin will be over, and I will fully and truly become what God has purposed me to be. Finally, what is it that I hope and long for concerning you who have read my story? Eugene Peterson has expressed it well in the message. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, 
God brings out the best of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. Romans 12, 1-2, the message. It is my conviction that the journeys on which the Holy Spirit has led me and many comrades of my generation are not primarily for our benefit. Rather, our journeys are meant to benefit you who are younger. I've written this book as a prayer that you who read my story and now you who listen on the podcast will discover and fully embrace the journey for which God has created you. May you too hear the Master's call, follow me, come, learn from me, and know my Father. May you be enlightened and empowered by the Holy Spirit to reflect the light of God for the sake of your own generation that so desperately needs the hope of God's good news and the sure purposes of God's kingdom. May we cry out to God as one people. May your kingdom come in this broken world. Let your good will be done here on earth the same way as it is in heaven. So now I put you in God's hands. I entrust you to the message of God's grace, a message that has the power to build you up and to give you rich heritage among all those who are set apart for God's holy purposes. Acts 20, 32, the voice translation. Well, that ends the reading of the book. Can hardly believe that in just a few months in October, this is in August 2023 as I'm reading this, um, it will have been seven years since I finished writing, or six years, I guess, 2017 to 2023. Man, a lot's happened in that six years. We have a 15th grandchild, Andrea and Daniel had a little girl named Laurel, who is now four years old. Uh, just as COVID was breaking out, Andrea and Daniel got a chance to buy a house two doors from our daughter Stephanie. And uh, so, and it had a mother-in-law apartment. So we sold our house and they moved close to Stephanie and we moved in with Andrea and Daniel. So uh, for a couple years there, before our grandchildren started going on, the older ones with their lives in new places, the whole crew of us was here together through the COVID uh, mess and and still uh, living close by. What a blessing it is. Our church is still going and Bill Kamenish is still leading and we've added some new younger elders and um, my life's not over. I have uh, the thrill of being able to invest especially in the older boys as they were teenagers and now in Two of my grandsons, one who just graduated from high school and one who will be a senior this year by trying to pass on uh, as much as I can the influence of my life and some of the things I've learned from the Lord and doing Bible studies with those two boys, uh, two young men. And uh, so there are many opportunities. My wife and I are still in relatively good health. 74 now, 
Don't know how many years I have left, but I do know one thing. I want to press on. I want to hear that upward call in Christ Jesus. And I want to reign on earth with his people in the age to come. I pray that you'll be among it and that we'll all be together and that God blesses you. I'm going to take a break from uh, working on podcasts. I'm kind of ahead in my recording, so there may not be a big break by the time these are out, but I have some uh, special projects to do in September and October. I need to prepare for them. I'd like to come back and at least I put some appendices in my book because the book was long, but there was stuff I wanted to share. Uh, I put together some outlines of the teachings or of the pictures that the Lord gave me of the church. Uh, when I got to go to Nicaragua and speak at some pastor's conferences back in 2015, I think it was. And I'd like to come back and talk about those with you because they get at the core of what I think God wants the church to be. And that's some things that I think we need to really hear and take hold of for the times that we live in. So the Lord willing, I'll come back with some of those at a future event. But God bless you and thank you for listening. Father, I thank you for the gift of your son. I thank you that he has come to bring us in relationship with you and that we can know you. I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit who makes you real and present in our lives every moment. And I pray, Lord, that every person that listens to this podcast, whatever their place and relationship and wherever they are in their journey, that you would be more real to them, more powerful to them, that they would know you more than they ever had before. And Lord, that together as your people, we'd be able to be a light in the midst of an increasingly dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.